Welcome to the Coop Tank. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, coming to you from Sweet Recording in beautiful Mount Laurel, New Jersey. You know, people, if you have a podcast, a video cast, audio book, hell, even if you want a studio built, Sweet Recording is the place for you. Joe Ganjami, not only is he a great guy, but he knows his stuff and he's very honest. So reach out to them at Sweet Recording, S-U-I-T-E, recording.com, or email them at hello at sweetrecording.com. Anyway, we have a we have a great guest today. My guest is uh if if you're going to start a business, listen to his step by step because this guy has built somewhat of an empire. I mean, in South Jersey, he went into the battle with the big guys and came out pretty much on top and it's from Hoffman's exterminating it's Bill Hoffman. How you doing, Bill? I'm doing great. Thanks, Steve, for having me. Yeah. So, let's get started. I, I always want to know extermination. Did you like bugs as a kid? I always wonder, like, when people go into that field, because I always think of the Brady Bunch, Harvey Klinger, the guy like bugs. But what's your background? I mean, what brought you into this field? So really, it was just a job. So, you know, at the time, my uncle was working for Acme Markets. He was a sanitarian. He was working with the exterminators uh, at a family function. He said, hey, they're looking for summer help. At that time, I was working on a pig farm. I was pumping gas. I was doing odd jobs. I was just getting out of uh, high school. So I said, why not? I didn't have any real good plans. I always had an ambition to just make money at that time. So I got into it as a summer internship. And a summer internship turned to a, a full-time job. It turned into advancing my career through education, through promotions, being a service manager, being an ops manager. And it, it you know, I, I call it like the mafia. It kind of sucked me in. I knew I couldn't get out. But it was very interesting because it was technical. It was customer service. It was sales. Um, you're working on your own. You're out in the field uh, servicing customers. You build relationships with the customers. You're building relationships out in the community. And I said, I, I think I can do this. I think I can make a career out of this. So, you know, after 10 years of working for a, you know, regional company, um, I, I said, I, I think I can do this as a career. So I really sat down and thought about what my future would look like. And that's when I started kind of planning how I could start my own business, uh, you know, almost 33 years ago. Now, when you say education, were you taking college classes? Were you being self-taught? I mean, what was it, you know, to learn? Because at some point you have to learn the business aspect, even though in all honesty, it more comes from when you're hands-on. I mean, you can read every business book, but if you're a moron, your, your business is going to suck. Yeah. But what, what, kind of, what kind of education when you refer to when you said you were getting educated? So in the beginning, it's great. So the state of New Jersey has a pretty robust program for anybody who gets in the pest control field, landscaping field, horticulture field. They're all very related. So Rutgers is uh, pretty much the university that we use for all the education. So they have specific programs, certification programs, licenses that you go through to learn the pest control business, basically environmental business, pesticide regulations, rodenticides. And at the 10 years I was with that regional company, um, I started really cut my teeth on that and realized that there was so much more out there. And being in Garden State, um, Rutgers still had its teeth in the agricultural market, and they do a lot of programs and training for the agriculture, which kind of bleeds into the horticulture, which kind of bleeds into the pest control. So they're all very related. So it's a very scientific-based business that's tied to the environment. And kind of what we do, what we do is we really protect structures, we protect the food, and we protect health. So agriculture is protecting the crops, you know, uh, horticulture is protecting the turf and ornamental. And what we do is protect the food supply chain. We supply uh protect structures against, you know, things like termites and carpenter bees. And then we protect people's health, ticks, mosquitoes. So 
when you kind of combine that, I realize that that's never going to go away. Um, you know, we're still in environmental issues that are going on. So pest control became that thing that I knew wasn't ever going to uh, go stale. It wasn't ever going to be taken over by technology. It was a people-based business. And, you know, we're constantly changing and the insects don't read books. So they're just going to keep populating. They're going to keep reproducing. They're going to keep causing havoc with our food supply or damaging people's homes. Or as you've seen with some of these pandemics, I mean, they're all bugs in one way or the other. Now, in the early days, I just want to, I always want to tell me some uh, crazy experiences trying to get past. Because I always think, you know, when we, I always think of the movie Caddyshack with the, with the ground, uh, uh, the gopher. And uh, just tell me, because I it always, I always sit there and go, man, these guys, I mean, you're tough. Like you're going to like, people don't, you know, we don't want to see spiders. You know, my wife goes crazy when there's a cricket. I'm like, put it outside. It's supposed to be good luck. But tell me some of the things that happened when you're when, in your early days, because it must've been eye-opening for some of these experiences you had. Oh, absolutely. I mean, some experiences early on were just, you know, in food plants, like you're going into a, a million square foot facility that has, you know, belts and conveyor belts and ingredients and, you know, brand name materials. But the insects don't care. The bugs don't care. The pests don't care that it's a, a name brand uh, out there. They're like, hey, it's an opportunity. I can get food. I can get shelter. Uh, I think I'll take over this building. So some of the early experiences is uh, we get into hoarder situations where, you know, hoarder situations become a great opportunity for, for mice, for rats, for roaches, for fleas, for ticks. And the bugs just adapt to our behavior. So the insects that we mostly deal with it's because of our behaviors, our recycling programs, our hoarding situations, our sanitation, our sewer systems, and they're opportunists, and they reproduce at great numbers. So, I mean, I remember drop, getting dropped into a sewer line in the city of Philadelphia, and just, you know, the walls came alive. You know, I, I remember going into a hoarder situation where, you know, the, the, the two state police guys are outside with their guns drawn and say, you need to go in there because there's something running in there, and we don't know what it is. <laughs> so, you're right. You got to get a little brave because- you know, we're dealing with some some crazy stuff. You know, we're dealing with raccoons and rats and mice and bats and and roaches. And and when I even talk about some of the stories that we do, you can just see people's hair on their arms stand up. And I always say everybody's got that crazy pest story. Like you said, that uh, National Lampoon Christmas story type thing. Like, you know, a bat in the house, a squirrel came out, uh, something jumped out of a cabinet. And I laugh with people. I'm like, why are you looking at your phone in the middle of the night? Well, I just got a picture of some kind of crazy bug that somebody wants to identify. Or, um, But, you know, everybody's got that crazy pest story at an event, at a holiday party, moving, opening up a box, decorating, you know, getting something. It's just crazy because, you know, these bugs been here a lot longer than us. They're going to be here a lot longer after us. So we're just, we're just here all, uh, for rented space. These things are going to be around way, way, way past when we're around. Now, you've been around for a long time. When did lanternflies – I lived in California for years. I never knew what a lanternfly was. Then I, right. come, I come back. I move back to Marlton. And I'm, luckily, we don't get a lot near our condo. Mm -hmm. But every once in a while, you see one, and they like they jump at you. When when did lanternflies become a thing? Because I had never heard of them. Yeah. So the cool thing is um, you know, we have – they were called invasive species. So they're not from this area. So we brought them in. We actually brought them in with, with wood from Vietnam. So, you know, because of our commerce now, because of our food su su uh, supply chain, stuff is coming around the world at record speed. I mean, we never – the reason you didn't have these things because, you know, if you bought something in America, it was probably produced in America. It came from America. Now, things are coming – you know, you get something on Amazon 
uh, on a Tuesday, you ordered it Monday, it could have came from another part of the world. Well, just think about how that's getting here. It's getting on ships. It's on planes. It's in boxes. It's in cargo. Some of these things are so small, and you're talking about sometimes it's an egg mass. Sometimes it's a couple babies. So spot lantern flies came in. We brought them in. They slipped through the all the customs and checkpoints, and the, the climate that they came in was right here in the Northeast. In Vietnam, the area they came from was the same climate. Ironically, we also had the same type of trees. We have an invasive uh, tree species over here as well. They call it the tree of heaven. Um, that's where they feed on Vietnam. So in the beginning, we're like, okay, well, they're, if we get rid of those trees, we should be all get rid of this pest. Well, the pest said not so fast. We like it here. And maybe we like other trees too. And sure enough, we've seen these spot lanternflies adapt to other trees that were native, black walnuts, grapes, apples, peaches. So they're an insect that actually uh, bores into the bark of the tree and sucks the sugar out. And you know, that's why they're damaging to a tree. So a tree is a, a living, breathing, you know, animal. It's a tissue. So what happens is eventually those trees die. They can't they can't survive the stress of constantly sh- uh, sucking up the sugar, which is kind of like the blood of a tree. So the spot lanternflies continue to do that. Uh, there's no natural predators here. Um, we are a country that doesn't just spray pesticides at the whim. So and they're in the canopies. So they're up in the trees. So it's not where you can see them or you can find them. So there's a lot of projects out, especially in the Northeast, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Maryland, Delaware, have programs to really try to battle these things. So uh, luckily for us, it became an, ag- it became an agricultural pest. Uh, when it comes to an agricultural pest, there's a lot more money involved. So the states are putting money because you know we're in it, still in the garden state. We have tons of wineries. Tons of trees, peaches, apples. You know, in this area, we still grow a lot of food. These things are now damaging food. When that happens, the Par- Department of Agriculture gets involved and and invasive species. Unfortunately, homeowners kind of just seem landing on houses, landing on sidewalks, in your pools, on your cars. They're just they're just doing it. They're just flying about. Um, they're really not damaging too much things around your home, but they're in the trees at such great numbers. That they're just horrible. They're nasty. They're they're ugly. They they're a leaf hopper. So they jump like a cricket when you get close to them. So you know, I've I've heard the also the most best screams in the world when you have somebody that jumps on them. Um, so yeah, we're battling them, but you know, really, it's a Department of Agricultural issue. So you said you worked for a company for ten years, mm-hmm. and then you decided to go on your own. What was it like? What were what were the steps you took to start your own business? Because like anything, it, it has to be a little bit terrifying because you're coming from a job you've been with for 10 years. So you 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 have your vacation and you have your salary and you know, you have sick time. What is it? I mean, what was it like when you first started your company? Well, the first thing is I was I was fearless. I think I could do this. I did it for another company. I knew I could work hard. I I technically I knew what I was doing. And I had a good business sense. So the first thing I decided to do is I, I need a business plan. I need to understand where am I going to be in five years, 10 years, 15, 20. So I really sat down and decided, one is I didn't want to open up my own business just to be an exterminator. I wanted to be a businessman. I want to be a leader. I want to be a community leader. So when I put that plan together, it included right away rapid growth, rapid development of people, structure, systems, so that as the business grew, 
I can continue to be the leader and not get sucked into just getting in a truck and going out and spraying bugs. I didn't want that. Um, so I put that plan together. I started getting uh, involved in chambers, associations, anybody that I thought was a, a, a smart business leader and just listen to everybody's suggestions. How do you build a business? How do you retain good, great talent? How do you recruit great talent? What community do you get involved with? Who do you get involved with? And I just kept, you know, I was a sponge for years and years and years and still am. And that allowed me to stay focused on the plan and understand what we do for a living is kill bugs. But what I really do is build businesses, build careers and develop people. Well, it's also though when you started on your own, you're sort of like, the Davy versus the Goliath, because everyone knew, everyone knows with the commercials, you know, Western, Orkin, how many there are. I mean, not the small ones, but the big ones. So when you go in, you have this idea, but how do you sit there and say, I, I got to cut into their marketplace because everyone knows them. And it's before, you know, LinkedIn and all that. It's, there wasn't social media, there was commercials. How did you start infiltrating that marketplace? Well, it's funny thing is I, I knew it was a people business. I knew that people wanted to have trust. They wanted to have a relationship with us. It's a personal business. We're going in people's personal spaces, in their homes, in bedrooms, in, in basements, and we're going into businesses. We had to be trusted to go in businesses and and have that confidence that you know we have to go in those tough areas of business, hospitals. So the first thing I did is build trust in the community again, make sure that people knew that I knew what I was doing technically, but I had to build their trust because, like you said, they trusted these big companies for years. So I realized that what they really wanted was they still wanted a partner. They wanted a partner in the pest control field. They wanted somebody to take over their services and have trust. So as I started going out there, I was just – that's what I was selling. I wasn't selling uh, a new bug juice. I wasn't uh, selling any special formula. What I was selling is myself, that I'm going to be here for you. I'm going to support you. I'm one phone call away, and technically I can keep up with those big companies because none of us have special sauce. But what the big companies I thought were lacking, the reason I left was they, they stopped uh, getting involved in community. They, they stopped looking at their people as an asset and almost as, as a liability. And I said, no, my people are an asset. The community is an asset. And if I keep pushing that, that message, people will start trusting me. And that's exactly how I got those accounts off the, the, the large competitors not because of my secret sauce, not because of anything, but we hired good people. We trained them to take care of your customers. That's their number one. And I trained all my leadership to take care of your team. They're number one. So as long as we have those two messages going back and forth, we have continued to grow. And like you said, we've outpaced those big companies. We outpaced our competitors and we haven't lost that message. We're still involved in the community probably more than ever. Uh, we're involved in our team more than ever because – it's all sustainability. We want to sustain this growth and this market, and that message can't go away. Now, in the beginning, when it was just you, you know, in your video on the website, which it says very good video, it was basically you servicing 50 clients, right. houses. When do you know it's time to bring someone on? Because I know sometimes people jump too early. And they bring someone on and they go, oh, my God, you know, well, we got to let you go. And it's like, well, we didn't know what you expected. But when did you know it was time to start building? Was there a certain, a definitive moment where you said, okay, it's time for me to start building because I'm, I'm catching fire right now. I'm getting I'm getting hot. Yeah, it's a great question. What, what I, I knew that I had to do is always uh, keep a pulse on my own time. When I realized I was doing 
all the time on service and not investing in the business, I had to hire somebody. I knew I was going to take less money out of business. I, I might not be able to pay myself the same money, but I knew that to keep the growth, I had to stay engaged in with customers in the community and networking events and partnerships. So when I found myself doing 50 hours of service work, I said, all right, I'm not going to make as much money next week or next month or maybe next year. But if I don't invest in a person, then I end up being that one-man company. And that's that was not my business plan nor my vision. So I looked, I'm like, all right, I am spending 60% of my time doing service work. That means I only have 40% for investment and growth. And that's not enough. So at that point, I would hire somebody. I knew I had to spend the first months and months training them. And I would be very selective. And we still are. Who we hire. And again, they're I say they're replacing me. So can they replace me? Uh, can they replace me with their with their personality, with their customer service, with their ability? And so as we found people to replace me in that sector, I'd go back out and build you know the services again and and get back involved in the community, get back involved. And then all right, now 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 I'm doing a little bit of service work because I grew a little bit. So it was it was a you know I'd say it's like a stair step. So you're taking a step up and you stay on that step for a little while. And then you take a step up. And sometimes you have to take one step back, but that's okay. So you look at the top of the stairs, you're like, that's where I need to be. It's 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 not a jump. I can't go from the bottom of the step to the top of the step. I gotta take these steps. And we I was very structured about, you know, when I put that plan, I says, listen, in a year I should be here, in two years I should be there, in three years I should be there. And if I have this much revenue, these many customers, I have to put this much time, I'm gonna have these many people. And I would be very uh, very focused on am I still in that plan? Am I still in that? Am I still rising to the top of the stairs or am I still at the bottom of the stairs or did I take too many steps back? And when I put that business plan, it's funny, when I hit my 10 years, I look, I'm like, I'm right on target. All right, time for another 10-year plan. And that's what we're doing. We're doing five, 10-year plans and we're very structured and focused through the economy, through the pandemics, through elections, through inflations, re- and all that. You got to be focused on your plan and you got to stay true to the plan. And even if it's you're staying on step too long, okay, as long as you don't take too many steps backwards, you're okay. When can you take that step forward? You can't take it too early because you can't leave your people behind. And they, you know, they need you. And in any good business, they, you realize that your team needs you. And, and now my focus is on different, my, my employees still, but I'm working with where the leaders, my leadership team. I still talk to all the technicians. I talk, talk to tons of customers, um, but my my team, my focus has changed um, just on the people I'm dealing with, not on the focus. Now, in the beginning, as I said, you know, you, you started hiring people. When do you know it's time to open another location? Because now you're going from someone who, I know it's in your plan, but that can be overwhelming because you're like all of a sudden like, okay, I got this one up running. It's great. And now you're going to a whole new area because you already built the community here. You're out there. You go to chambers. And all of a sudden you're saying, okay, I'm going to go to a whole new area where you're basically, to me, it's sort of like starting over somewhat. But when did you, I mean, when does a good business person know it's time? Like when where, your first location was where? It matched with it. Okay. So where we are right now, that was and my where first. was your second one? In uh, Northfield, Lang City. Okay. So that's a, first of all, it's a big difference in time. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a drive and it's completely, you know, it's Northfield. It's yeah. down near Atlantic City. When did you know it was time? And how did you go about opening that second location? Because it had to be, once again, a little bit terrifying. 
Yeah. So what we did was we look at our, our demographics of our customers, and we also look at our people, our staff. So our offices are open when we have the right staff and we have enough customers to support that, and we want to get back strong into that community. Because even though we're in South Jersey, Southeast in Pennsylvania, Delaware, each one of these markets have a different market. Very, very specific. Burlington County is way different than Gloucester County. So when we open up an office, it's very strategic. It's We have customers in that area already because, you know, South Jersey is still South Jersey. So if you have a, you know, if you have a house in Burlington, maybe you have a house down Atlantic City or Margate. Um, if you come from Philadelphia, maybe you come over South Jersey shop or vice versa. So we kind of call it the, you know, interesting enough, we call it like the Philadelphia Eagles market. Like Philadelphia Eagles are not Philadelphia fan base. It's South Jersey. It's Delaware. It's it's Southeastern Pennsylvania. That's kind of where our customers are. They're in this this area. Um, if I go too far north in Jersey, I'm realizing I'm out of my market. It's a whole different culture. You know, so if you're if you're a, a, a you know Mets fan or if you're a Giants fan, that's a different clientele than if you're a Philadelphia Eagles fan, right? So the South Jersey people, uh, South. Uh, South Philly people, they all kind of relate. They, we all go down the Jersey sh- Like we go down the shore right. where everybody else goes to the beach, you know? So I, just the terminology we use down here. Um, so when we open up that area, it's tr- it's strategic with client base, people that maybe live closer to that area. So before we hire an, an office, we start looking for people. We start hiring in that area. We start looking at customers that we currently have in one area and say, geez, I wonder how many of my clients have businesses, relationships in that other market that I want to go to. So when we opened up Northfield, um, ironically, um, a partner of mine came in in 2005. He bought into the business. Where was he from? Atlantic City. Well, this could work out beautifully because that's your home base now. And again, get involved in the community. So people in Atlantic City want to know that you're from this area. This is where you live. This is where you breathe. This is where you work. So it works. So when we go into a community... We make sure that we have people that are embedded in the community. We have clients that already have relationships in there. And then we start looking at the chambers, the associations. How do we get engaged with them? How do we let them know we're here? And how do they they let their members know we're here? So now you have six. You just opened your sixth. Where are they all located? And and, and once again... Mm -hmm. You know, there are different places. I mean, do you ever feel that there might be overlap or or have you scattered it out where, you know, you know exactly? Because once again, South Jersey is not that big. You know, you have one in Burlington. Okay. That's not too, I mean, you think about it, it's not too far from Mantua. You know, so how did you, where are they all located? So- all the offices are ironically 40 minutes from the Mantra office, and I, that was very purposely. I wanted to make sure that I could be in, in any office for an hour, and we can be in any customers very quickly. Our response time is critical. So right now we have um, an office in Northfield, like I said. Our main office is in Mantra, which was the original office. Uh, we also have an office in Woodbury Heights. We have an office in Middletown, Delaware. We have an office in Burlington, New Jersey, and we have an office in Newtown Square, Pennsylvania. So, and they're all – they all just go on – Yep. So no no office overlaps. So they kind of meet in the middle. So, you know, the Delaware office comes up through Delaware and a Newtown Square office goes down to Delaware. So because customer response to us is critical, we want to make sure the customers know if you call me, we're there. We're going to be there very quickly. Um, we're not sending guys hours and hours on the road, which, you know, we're not – we don't make money like UPS does. We don't make money by delivering. We make money by being in front of a customer and servicing their home and their business. So we can't be on the road all the time. Um, with price of gas and vehicle. So, you know, my job to my customers is making sure I'm running a really good shop so that I can keep my costs down and get the response done. Now, 
when people think exterminator, they just think killing bugs, you know, mm -hmm. killing in. But you do a lot more. Tell me some of your services. I know because like, and I've talked to Eve Pappas about the the bed bug dogs. Mm -hmm. That fascinates me. She was in. A, I was in a break room with her. I'm like, I don't care what you people do. I want to hear about the damn because they the, the heat and the dogs go in and all that. How? What are some of the other off services you offer, and, and what made you decide to get into them? Because once again, I think Orkin, I think Western, I think they just come in and kill bugs. Nice. But you guys do so much more. Yeah, so you know, one of the things we always we we're, we want to consider ourselves environmentalists. We want to make sure that we're not just spraying chemicals, we're not just killing bugs, because there are many, many, many beneficial insects that we need out there. Uh, for instance, I'm a beekeeper. I'm in New Jersey. I'm in uh, a New Jersey Beekeeper Association. I'm an actually beekeeper. People are like, why were you a beekeeper? Well. Bees are protected. You can't kill bees in a state of New Jersey or any state, especially honeybees. So how do you deal with a customer who has honeybees? Well, we figured out, well, if we can go in and actually remove the honeybees safely, take that hive, relocate that hive, clean up the mess they kind of left behind, seal it all up without killing a bee. So we don't use chemicals. We're not killing anything. We're removing. We do the same thing with animals. I mean, somebody has a squirrel in their, their attic. It's not our nature to go in there and just kill that squirrel. If we can relocate that squirrel, put it back in its environment, seal up the hole that it got into, everybody's happy. So we realized that we could do exclusionary work. So we do exclusionary work because we want to keep the pest where they're supposed to be and not where they're not supposed to be. So we do exclusion work, seal doors, seal openings, open up things to remove the pests safely. We use vacuums, we use fans, we use all kinds of apparatuses because in the day when I got into pest control, it was like, hey, that stuff smells great, it's horrible, so it must work. So that was that was pest control 101. I sprayed, it smelled, you thought I did a good job, you paid me money. Now, people are, especially the new generation, very environmentally conscious. They, they want our planet saved. Um, they don't want bugs, but they also don't want me coming in there with the nastiest spraying this stuff. So we had to come up with alternatives. We, so we talked about the bed bug dogs. We have a bed bug canine detection dog. Yeah, tell, tell, explain that because this yeah. fast this fascinates me. When Eve yeah. told me this, I was like, "What?" And it's so cool. Tell so so bed bugs are very hard to determine unless you have a huge infestation. But if you have one or ten bed bugs in your home, in a hotel room, in a movie theater, in an airplane, it's like finding a needle in a haystack. So we have a dog that's trained. It was trained the same way that bomb cadaver. Drugs, same academy, same thing. So dogs can be trained to trigger or alert on a specific scent. Their smell is hundreds of times better than ours. So it's actually my wife who handles is the handler of the dog. So we have an employee that's got four legs and has fur. Okay, so most people can't say that. But the dog can go into situations, no chemicals, very no, it's very, you know, very easy to do. It's non-invasive. So we do things like Ron McDonald houses, hotels, movie theaters, hospitals, places where what would you do if you had a hospital or nursing home with 20 rooms? Somebody thinks there's bed bugs. How do you inspect? People are in their rooms. Maybe they're on IV. Well, the dog goes in there, spends a few minutes. People just think that, you know, a nice, funny dog with a waggy tail. But what that dog is doing is working. It's working hard. It is It is determined to sniff out and find that bed bug. And if we do, then we can say, okay, all right, this room here has a situation. Now we can make arrangements. Now the whole place isn't up in arms. We don't have people getting transported out of there. Now we can come up with alternatives. We can come up with heat, 
non-chemical treatments. We come up with, uh, with steam. So we have all kinds of methods that we can use, what we call green methods, that we can get rid of almost any pest without invasiveness, without disturbing people. Like if you're, you know, your your parents are staying in a nursing home and Miss Jones next door has bed bugs, you know, we got to get rid of them. But we can't just go in there and start spraying. We can't, you know, we don't want people spraying, you know, Lysol sprays or anything because, you know, there's things that you just can't do. So the bed bug dog gives us that ability to be a detective. It's basically going in and within minutes we can determine we can have a corrective action here. Now, you're also very involved with the Philadelphia sports teams. Correct. Which is, as a fan, it must be great. I mean, that's the thing I talked to uh, TJ from LifeBrand. He said, it's amazing when you go and you think, oh my God, I grew up an Eagles fan and, and there's a sign, there's this. How did you How did you get those accounts? How did you, and what made you seek them out? Because once again, that's a really big fish to fry for even though you've had a lot of locations, once again, a lot of times these big companies, they don't think, they automatically go, we want to go to a big company, but they don't know that they're not getting the attention. You know, they're sitting there going, well, I don't know if they can do the job. But of course you can because you had you've had all these locations. But when did you decide to start going off after the teams, and then what was the, what was your course of action? So funny thing is, we didn't go after them; they came after us. Um, we always did a lot of engagement with the community. We support autism. We support the Ron McDonald House. We always supported these what we thought were just great charities, great organizations that did so much for the community. So we always stayed involved. We always got our people involved. Well. Eventually, you know, when social media came, you know, we, we, we were telling our story and, and, and we're proud of that story. So we're telling the story about how we're involved with some of these organizations. Well, ironically, the Philadelphia Union was our first sports team. It was a customer of ours. A customer actually worked for the Philadelphia uh, Union as a corporate salesperson. Ironically, he called me one day and says, why don't you come in and talk to me about a partnership with the Philadelphia Union? I really didn't know that much about the union. I didn't know anything about partnerships. You know, I didn't know, you know, how do you partner with a sports team? So we actually sat down at a table and he told me some of the things that uh, the Philadelphia Union would do for me. And then I explained what we could do for them with their stadium. Uh, they own some properties and and how we can support their the, the actual team. And I'm like, how can me, one little pest control company, support a team? Well, we realized that one of the things that they do is they're very involved in youth, so youth academies, youth soccer programs, um, getting more uh, kids engaged in soccer, competing with baseball, football, whatever else. So we sat down and we came up with a plan, say, hey, well, we're going to put your sign here and we'd like you to come to this academy and support this. Uh, we'd like you to do the pest control at the stadium. So it was kind of a, you know, you know, you do this, I do that. It's a tit for tat. We're going back and forth and back and forth and we said, wow, it's, um, I think we could do this. I think we can make this work because what they're asking for is a partnership. And I said, if we partner with them, obviously they have resources. So they can teach us things we probably don't understand about fan base, about activations, about, about fan experience, about filling 18,000 seats, you know. So we learned a lot from them and we continue to learn. And we did anything and anything they asked. If they said, can you come and, you know, we got an employee appreciation day. We'll be there. What do you need from us? Uh, bring your mascot. Bring uh, some baskets. Bring So anytime they asked us to get engaged with their initiatives, we got engaged. Um, hey, we're going to do a youth academy. 
Uh, we'd love to have some vendors there to offset the cost or give out some water or something. So I said, well, we could do that. Well, what happened is we realized that those fans that were coming to see the Philadelphia Union or maybe having their kid involved in a, a camp were talking to us as well about their home, about their business. And the connection was, well, if you're good enough for the Philadelphia Union, you must be good enough for me. So we realized, wow, we're we're building a – a, a reputation because of our engagement. Well, ironically, we kept doing things. We kept doing events. We kept doing charity events and engaged in the autistic community. Believe it or not, the Philadelphia Eagles called on me. And I still remember this call and I ignored the call for months because I'm like, this is this is a sales pitch. This guy's called me from the Philadelphia Eagles. There's no way this this is real. Now, not me. It's, you know, well, I, I finally took the call. And the guy's name is Nick Michaels, a wonderful, wonderful human being. Um, he says, Bill, listen, we've been following you on social media. We've seen what you do with the Philadelphia Union. We see what you do with the autistic community, Ronald McDonald House. We see that you're always engaged in the community. We like to talk to you about a partnership with the Philadelphia Eagles. I'm like, this can't be real. This can't be real. So I'm there and – you know, I, I go to the Novacare complex. I sit down and, and players are walking past me. Coaches are walking past me. And it's just a day in business for them. I mean, they, you know, I'm in awe and I'm trying to tell them, make it look like an awe. I'm really trying to like make it look like I'm cool and collected. But I'm like, oh, my God, I wish I could whip out my phone and take all these pictures. But I just talked to them. And again, we start talking about what they wanted. And they wanted a local company that engaged in their purpose. They're extremely engaged in the autistic uh, – Jeff Lurie's foundation is doing wonderful things. But also uh, youth academies, uh, reaching out to – introducing girls to flag football. Um, and he said, these are all the things that we want to do, You know, not from a, a Philadelphia Eagles sports franchise, but the Philadelphia Eagles as a business, as a community leader. And when they started talking to me about that, I, I really for a while forgot about the football team and just looked at Philadelphia Eagles as a business, as a business model, as a community leader. And I'm like, you know what? I think we can do this. And, you know, the numbers were kind of crazy and scary. And, um, you know, it's kind of funny. I'm like, you know, you know, they say, oh, we'll give you a suite. Well, I said, yeah, I don't know if we want all that. I just want to I just want to get back to the community and figure out how we can get in. You know, we could, we definitely can service the stadium. We have the capability of servicing the stadium. But I want to make sure that we have the capability of being your community leader. And we did. And it was ironic. It was like uh, both organizations have been awesome teaching us and working with us and throwing ideas our way. And we throw ideas right back at them. Um, and that led us to the Wells Fargo Center and the Philadelphia Flyers because um, all these teams in Philadelphia talk. I mean they they have relationships. They talk. And – you know, we, I I would go back to the team, and it, you know, one of my biggest things is like I want to make sure my team is behind me, and that I'm not just you know I'm I'm not doing because Bill Hoffman wants to do it. I want to make sure that Hoffman's wants to do this. And when I said, listen, the Philadelphia Flyers also does some great things in the community. You know, they have the uh, fight for leukemia. They have the the Flyers Wives Clubs. They have the five K. They again, they're giving back in the community. I can't help them win a championship. I can't, you know, I'm not going to increase their fan base. But what I'm going to do is make sure that I'm involved in all their community-based programs, and 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 I will do anything they ask me. If they want me to put tents and ten people, and we do the the hunger drives, and that's where we're giving back. Um, and how I get back to my employees, like, hey, listen, yes, you'll you'll get to come to games, you'll get to do things. Um, but in the end, I'd never have a problem when I say we have an event on Saturday. It's a 5K, 
and we need to be there. We need to, uh, we're going to be volunteers. We're going to make this. We're going to do that. My team is right there because they understand the mission. We give back and that's what we do. Now, when you get an account that big, like the Eagles, that's a big, you know, and you got to clean this team. Do you ever sit there and and maybe it's just me because I'm I'm always I always worry. But do you ever sit there and go, man, I don't I don't want to screw this up. Like like did, has that ever crossed your mind? Like in the beginning, going, what if I screw this up? It's, I'm going to be like, oh my god, I screwed up the Eagles. And I think everyone goes with that little bit of doubt. But did that ever happen to you, or were you always so confident in your team, which is great? That means you built a big team. But even me, in the back of my mind, be like, oh, something's going to happen. Like they're going to spray the wrong thing, and like Fletcher Cox is going to get an infection, and then we're screwed. Now, you know, listen, we, we look at uh, those big accounts as, as, as a lot of small individual businesses. I mean, that's what they really are. I mean, those stadiums are big masses, big buildings, but in, in reality, it's small areas. It's, it's, it's it, restaurants or storage areas. So when we tackle those accounts and we do, you know, hospital chains, we do million square foot warehousing, I, it, it's, it's individual, you know, you break it down, you know, you break it down in, in the sections and, and scopes of services. And you really look at this and say, don't get overwhelmed. Don't, you know, don't walk. I mean, like I said, if you're driving to Florida, don't look at the map from Jersey to Florida. Where are you going for the next five miles, the next 10 miles? That's what's most important. You know, we know we have to go south, but where's the exit you get off first? Where's the turn you get off first? And that's how we address these things. And and you know we are we have systems in place to make sure that we're doing the right things. We're always validating what we're doing because again we don't want to look at this partnership as oh well we don't have to do a great job because we're a partner. We actually want to do a better job. We want to make sure that from the service end we're doing fantastic. And they look at us and say we're never ever getting rid of this partnership because we don't want to be well we have a partnership. So I know you're not the, we're not doing a great job at this stadium or no. So the funny thing is we know we're doing a great job because. I'm getting calls from the Philadelphia staff. Hey, this guy works in ticketing. Uh, we got a VP. We got this. We want we want you to go to their home. And when they send you to their home, that's when you know that you're doing the right thing because they're like, well, all right, this is a business. This is a stadium. Okay. But I'm coming to so-and-so's home into their private space, basically being invited in. And that's when we know that we've done a great job, that we're trusted. And, and again, when I say, I say, listen, yes, this person works for Philadelphia Eagles, but do it as if it's my house or my grandmom's house or your house. Do it professionally. Do it right. Don't get in awe because in, in, we're there for a purpose and that's it. Now, you've mentioned community a lot, how you give back to the community. And I think there's there's people like you who give back to the community. And there's people that want to be seen like they're giving back to the community. And that happens. You know, just that they go, oh, this is going to help me in my business. Where does that come from? from you for giving? Were your, were your, did your parents give back to the community? Because it's, it's not, someone just doesn't wake up one day and decide, I'm going to give back to the community. I think it's something you're born with. But where does it come for you? Because you do, and that's one thing I noticed, you guys do so much community work. And the autism, well, with the Eagles, my friend Wesley's uh, daughter is autistic. And they went, she went to a game. She's little, and it's great because they give the headphones and it's just the, um, and they don't get freaked out by the crowd. And it's just an amazing, it's an amazing uh, experience. But where does that come from for you, the the want to give back to community? Well, listen, I came from an Irish Catholic family. I got se seven siblings. So when you come to a family cat, you you are always giving, giving, giving. I mean, you know, we have a huge family, tons of first cousins. And when you grow up in a family cat, we're, you know, we're always together. Christmas, Thanksgiving, parties, events. 
you know, growing up like that. And you just realize that giving back, giving back, giving back. So, you know, we always were in that situation where, you, you know, somebody needed something in the family, you help them. Somebody's moving, somebody's doing this. So when you get in a community environment, you realize there's so many people um, that don't have the privileges that we do. And, you know, we, you know, in our family, like, hey, we're so blessed because our family's healthy and this and that. And we say, you know, how, how can we help people? How can we give back? And it just, it became natural, it became an instinct that just, you know, we, we started getting one little call and another little call. Like, and again, we know that we can't do everything, but I've always said, you know, you know, you're doing the right thing if it hurts a little bit. If it's a little painful, giving back. If you just do a little bit where you say, hey, here's my – I got my you know, my face in a newspaper. Listen, it, it should be the point that you're you're really trying to rearrange schedules to do it. That's when you know you've arrived. And I tell people, they say, hey, am, am I giving enough? I said, does it, does it hurt? Does, is it inconvenience a little bit? Well, no, not at all. I mean because I got my house down to shore. I got this. So I don't give up my weekends for nobody. Well, then you're probably not giving enough because people – uh, that you know, Ron McDonald House, autistic, they need us all the time, not just when you have a free few free minutes. So I push that to our employees. I, it's great that you have the the Memorial Day weekend, but I can tell you right now, for, my team just went down to uh, the Farley Plaza in Atlantic City, and they're doing a hundred days of summer down there. They're doing a community event. I'm sure my people want to go home early Friday. But I have a team that just went down there, and they're going to be down there at six o'clock tonight, welcoming people back to the Jersey Shore. And they can try to get the free uh, ch- uh, chicky crabby fries because yeah. they're giving fries down yeah. in, in the Farley Center. Yeah. So that's that's I always tell people. So it comes. I think it just comes from my upbringing. Like my my parents were always given a always you know family members and things. And then we just realized that it, it's it's good for the community. It's good for business. It's good for recruitment. Um, it's good. It, there's no bad thing that comes out of giving to the community. And I always believe, and, and uh, you know, E. Pappas is, has that same belief that I do, get back to what hurts a little bit. If it doesn't hurt a little bit, if it's not an inconvenience, you're probably not doing enough. So you mentioned also earlier networking. How important has networking been to the growth of your business? Well, network became, in early years, became my necessity. I needed to network to get to get to the professionals. I needed to be around people that were smarter than me, that were that had already been through it, that had the resources. So my network in the beginning became totally selfish for mine. I need to be around these great leaders, these great community leaders, these great business leaders. So I I just was there because I wanted to hear what they had to say. I wanted to absorb anything they did. Then I realized that once I got a little bit in my in the business career, I realized that people are starting to ask me advice. Like wait, so this is actually a two-way street, and it was a you know it wasn't in the beginning. It was more of a purpose, but now I see networking is a two-way street. It's a give and take. It's it's connecting people, connecting relationships. You know, at, you know, you can't always measure networking with did I get five leads or am I going to get a sale? It's if you built a relationship, if you now have a new friend, if you have a new acquaintance, a new connection, you you've succeeded in networking. So. Networking should not be a task. It's an it, it's a journey. So I realize that networking is a connection. It, it's an ongoing connection because you need to have more people in your network as you grow. And there's going to be different needs at different times. Maybe it's a professional network. Maybe it's a service network. Maybe it's somebody looking for a building for me or looking for an employee or I need help or they need help. And what happens is it starts connecting you in a way that it almost 
it, the floodgates are open. You, you can't patch it up anymore. And that's when it's awesome because as we build the team, we start networking. We get our other people involved in the organization to network. So now there's connections. And it's amazing when I bring somebody out to a networking meeting and they're kind of walking in a little shy, a little introvert. And all of a sudden they're like, hey, I know that guy. I know that girl. And all of a sudden they're in the corner talking. And they're like, wow, I wouldn't, I didn't know that they were part of this networking group. I didn't know they came here. I didn't, I haven't talked to this person in 20 years. And then I said, well, you want to go to, an, oh, yeah, I want to go to another network. So it's, if you've never done networking, it is scary. You know, it's kind of like, you know, the old prom date. Like, oh my, I don't have a date. I want to sit and I want to ask somebody to dance. Once you do it and you realize that it's not scary, everyone's kind of a little nervous. Everyone's trying to meet somebody. It, it becomes easier. And then you realize it's just a great social gathering, exchanging ideas, being helpful, in expanding your your thought process, your horizon, your business relationships. And you never know who you're going to meet. Um, the interesting thing is uh, Ron McDonald House came to me because 20 plus years ago, I went to a networking event with a friend. I'm sitting at a table, just me and him. And it was a woman sitting at the table by herself. It happened to be Sue Campbell, who was now the CEO of the Ron McDonald House in Philadelphia. She was not the CEO back there. She actually just got done. Um, she was still working at the desk, and she was driving a bus. And I said, hey, my name is Bill Hoffman. Who are you? She introduced herself. What do you do? I work at the Ron McDonald House. Oh, interesting. What do you do there? Well, I was a volunteer. I was driving a bus, and now I'm at the help desk. Interesting. Um, tell me a little bit about Ron McDonald House. Now, I was doing McDonald's stores. So I kind of knew a little bit. I didn't really know about the Ron McDonald. I didn't know the whole history. I didn't know the whole how it came to be, the whole thing. So she explained what they do, how they help the community, uh, how it got started. You know, hey, it's a Philadelphia Eagles thing, blah, blah, blah. Jim Murray, uh, Audrey Evans. So she goes, well, I know there's, there's a problem. There's a pest issue that maybe you can help us with. I said, well, that's what we do. So let me come in and talk to you. And I, I met an engineer there. His name is Barry Owens. He's since retired. And he goes, yeah, Bill, that would be great if you can help us out. And I said, well, I know you're not – How can? and I didn't know. I said, how can I help you? He goes, well, we have a, a, a thing called like you know free services, gratis services, or you know, in-kind services. I'm like, well, what is that? He goes, well, if you come in and do the exterminating for us for free, that would be awesome. I'm like, oh, so, so we can do that? Oh, absolutely. So that's kind of how it started. And my journey has been people teaching me what I didn't know. I didn't know anything about nonprofit services. I knew how to do exterminating, but I didn't know how me doing exterminating to a Ronald McDonald house saves them money where they could put that money to use for something else that they needed. Well, I'll start with just doing exterminating. And then it was, well, can you prepare some meals? Can you do this? Can you come to an event? Can, and it led to, so now we are the premier partner for the Ron McDonald House and all four other locations in the Delaware and New Jersey markets in Philadelphia. And that started with me networking, not really knowing I was networking. I was just basically going with my buddy because he had an extra ticket and his wife didn't want to go. And that's how it started. I realized, wow, so just having a conversation with somebody, realizing that they have a need, I have a service, and if we can connect the dots, it works. I have one final question for you. What nuggets of advice would you give to that young business owner? Because you know you 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 started in as I said, 1990, just you, and now you have you know six offices, lots of workers, 
you know, you're still out there. You have to be out there all the time. You're working with the Eagles. You're working in this. You're always expanding. And I know you said earlier you did do the plan and you found your plan. And I think a lot of people like you who, even though you're at a point now where you could stop, you're still probably looking, even you're getting older, like down the road going, okay, well, I want to keep building and then someone, I can hand this off to someone eventually that I that works with me that I trust. But what are some nuggets of advice you would give to people who is just starting that business now? And given that when you started, there wasn't LinkedIn, there wasn't emails, you had to cold call, you had to get out there, you had to show your face. Now you don't, you can get on Zoom, things like that. But what are some valuable nuggets you can give to that that 25, 30, 35 year old person, or even 40 or 45 who wants to go out on their own and wants to start their own business, what advice would you give? Probably three things I'd say is one is know what you don't know. You don't have to know everything. You don't. What you have to do is know where you can get the information. So if you're not a great accountant person, if you're not great at sales, if you're not great technology, absorb that and then find the people that can help you. Don't, it's not, not bad to say I'm great at this, but there's two parts of the business I don't know. Get that expert advice. Uh, the other thing is definitely get out in the community. Definitely get out and network because there's going to be connections that you don't even know uh, that are out there until you go out there. So um, people won't come to you unless you go to them and they feel that you're a trusted source. So go out, spend the time to network and and pick that area. If it's uh, if it's Building your business solely, well, maybe go to Chambers. If it's getting information, hey, your, your local colleges, your local business networks, there's so much information. There's there free training, available training. Um, you can probably go to county colleges and take business classes. Um, and third is people. Uh, in our business, you know, and most businesses, it's all about the people. The way people look for jobs, stay at jobs, and look at their own future is going to change and has changed dramatically. Understand that if you want to grow a business, it's it's a people business. Regardless of what you do for a living, it becomes a people. And if you're not a people person, if you don't understand people, if you don't get the help that you need to understand and recruit and retain people, then you're going to be the best one-man business ever. Well, I want to thank you. This is great, uh, Bill. So uh, how can people get in touch with you? Uh, website, all that good information. Yeah, so listen, our website is pretty easy. It's hoffmanpest.com. Uh, my email is pretty easy as well, whoffman at hoffmanpest.com. And, you know, I'm going to give you my cell phone because I still answer my cell phone. A crazy guy answers cell phone, but 609-634-9338. So, people, reach out, especially if you got those damn lantern flies. You know, and, and, you know, and if you have a, a skunk or a rat or a mouse and you're worried about the uh, environment, reach out to Hoffman. Anyway, people, I want to thank you all for listening. Uh, you can hear past episodes at thecooptank.podbean.com or on Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, or Spotify. Also, I can be emailed at thecooptank at yahoo.com. I also coach podcasters, so you can reach out to me. Um, also, this is the last one-on-one interview. Starting next week, we're doing a, I'm changing the format to a roundtable with three different people talking about different business uh, business problems, networking tips, shit like that. So I want to thank Joe Ganjami from Sweet Recording. Reach out to them at sweetrecording.com. Hello at sweetrecording.com. I'm Steve Cooper. You all have a great day. Mm-hmm.